0: Well, if you have your Bibles, if you would, go ahead and open them to Matthew. Uh, We're back in Matthew chapter 5, as we're continuing through this series uh, called Disciple, and we're going through uh, some of the the high points of Jesus' teaching throughout the book of Matthew, and we're still in the beginning stages of chapter 5, and talking about living the life and following Jesus. And so in the first handful of verses, Jesus goes through what we call the Beatitudes, which really is the foundation of what it means to follow Jesus. And so he's giving us kind of the gateway or the doorway into following him and what it means to have a relationship with him. And if you're here last week, John Looney did a great job of talking about what it means to be pure in heart and being focused and devoted solely on what Jesus is doing. And, uh, and so this week, we jump back in. And we're going to look at verse 9 and talk about the concept of peacemaking and allowing the context of peace to be something that describes our lives And so if you have your Bibles open, let me just read the the one verse we're going to jump from today that Jesus says to us about the importance of of peacemaking. He says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. So Jesus says in verse 9, he says to you and I that you're approved, lucky, fortunate, happy, blessed when you're a peacemaker. And the reason why is because you and I get the title of son or daughter of God which is relatively significant. And what Jesus is saying to you and I is that obviously God invites us to be a part of his family through Jesus. That's what we've talked about. Our primary identity when we say yes to Jesus is that we are children of God, that we belong to him. But this title comes to us because what God says of you and I, that just as you look in any earthly family, you can see good traits and you can see bad traits. You can say, hey, that's consistent with that family. That's the way that they function." And God's family, the what is very descriptive of the way that God functions in this world, is that he's the one that brings peace. And he brought peace through Jesus' death on the cross. So that's a characteristic of God. So if you and I become like him in that we value and seek after and, and, and are peacemakers in our context, then we too are just like our Father in heaven who is all about peace. So we get to have that as a, as a mantle of who we are. In fact, it's not something that we earn, but it's something that God gives to us as a blessing to us and to everybody around us to be people who seek after, value, and make peace in our relationships and with the world around us. So in order for us to, to feel the, the understanding, of this I want you to, to know, obviously, peace is a descriptive word that really is the antithesis of the culture we live in and in the world we live in. Because we live in a context that is not defined by peace. It's usually defined by war, division, angst towards each other, offense, um, all kinds of stuff. There's turmoil internally in people's lives. There's governments that war against each other. There's nations that war against each other. So for, for us to understand peace, it's sometimes difficult because it seems to be the opposite of what we live in. But that's the beauty of what Jesus did is that Jesus comes into a world that is described by division and most importantly division between man and God and through his death on the cross he brings this ultimate act that brings reconciliation between us and God and brings us back into a peaceful existence with the God of the universe. Jesus is the bridge of peace for us personally and for our world. I saw this demonstrated in a profound way in China. In fact, go ahead and put the the picture up on the screen. Let me describe for you what you're seeing so i had quite a, a history lesson about the nation of china the last couple of days we were there we we went from we were in shanghai for the conference and then we we traveled uh, a number of hours kind of northwest to a city called nanjing which beijing nanjing are been kind of the two seeds of power in china's history and in beijing is the north nanjing is more in the south and so uh, before uh, world war ii uh, kind of the seat of power for china was in nanjing for a season of time and so in 1937, uh, the Japanese attacked mainland China. Mainland China and they, they, they made, made it through Shanghai very rapidly. And as they took, took that, they, in fact, in their own minds, they believed that they could occupy and take over China in seven months, which is incredible. So they, they really blow through Shanghai. And, and the reason they blew through Shanghai is they wanted to get to Nanjing because they wanted to make a statement to the Chinese people. They wanted to demoralize them. They wanted to defeat them not only by war, but they wanted to defeat them psychologically. So when the Japanese arrived in Nanjing, their purpose was not only to overthrow the city, but was actually to destroy the people in China. So in a six-week period, they actually killed 300,000 people in that city in six weeks. And it wasn't just, let's kill people— but there were, there were, there were estimated 20,000 rapes, there were um, beheadings, there was torture. There were, anything that they could do to psychologically destroy the Chinese people, they did it. So this is, this is a very dark season in the, in the history of China. And it's a very deep wound. To this day, the, the Japanese government has never officially apologized for what they call the Nanjing Massacre. And so you, you go to this, what you see right here is a memorial. This is what's crazy. This huge memorial takes up tons of city blocks, is put on a, on a place where they discovered three years ago there was a mass grave of 10,000 bodies that they unearthed. And they have part of them, you can see the skeletons still remain in the ground where they, they unearthed them. But you walk into the courtyard before you go through kind of a museum-like thing that tells the story, and you walk in, and this is what you see. And understand, this was put into place three years ago. The very thing that marks peace for the world is the cross, and a communist government who funded and built the memorial put a cross in the middle of it. Is that insane or what? My dad and I walked in and were like, uh, "Is that a cross?" I, I'm not quite sure, because I don't think it belongs in this place because you would think that they would that's the last thing they would want to do. But here sits this cross, which is the definition of peace for the world. In a communist country, that even in a communist country, people understand that Jesus, even if they don't fully understand who he is, he is the one that brings peace. He is the one that brings peace between us. He is the one that brings peace between nations. He is the one that ultimately brings peace between us and God. Even a communist country understands that. That's why it's so important for you and I to understand that today. And so I want to begin with talking about, at a very personal level, what you and I have to be willing to do in order to be people of peace, to take seriously personally making peace in our lives with people and with God. First thing that you and I need to be willing to do to take this seriously, is, as I mentioned, is you and I have to be willing to make peace with God. Now, most of us here today, you sit and say, you know, I am at peace with God. I understand who Jesus is, and I know what he's done in my life, and I realize that he's taken my sin, and he's he's allowed the wrath of God to be poured out on him so that I don't have to, and because of that, I can be at peace with God. But there's some of us that, on the outside, we, we try to portray that reality. Hey, I'm good, I'm at peace, but deep inside of us, there's all kinds of turmoil. Because if we were honest with ourselves, if we let the, outside, the inside of us come to the outside, to the forefront, what you and I would see is that deep down inside there are places in our heart, there are areas in our life that we have yet to fully surrender to Jesus. And because of that, we know we're at odds with God. And so even though we try to live on, with peace on the outside, deep inside of us, you and I are struggling every single day. Because you and I can feel the weight of God pushing against us and wanting us to fully surrender everything in our life, including our sin, including everything that's hidden in our hearts, all the skeletons in our closet, all those things. But you and I are working overtime to keep those hidden. And in the process, what you and I are doing is we're remaining at odds with God. When Jesus said, I've come to bring peace, I've come to reconcile you back to God. But you and I have to be willing to surrender fully for reconciliation to happen. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 2 verse 13. He says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Some of you, some of us live at a distance from God, at odds with him. And what God may be saying to you today is it's time to stop fighting. It's time to quit the battle. It's time to stop warring against God because inside of you there's this constant tension that you're living with and you need to get to a place where you can let go of that because you finally say okay God I give up see that this is the one thing that you're going to have to get used to about God he never quits he's relentless He will never, ever, ever stop pursuing the human heart. He will never, ever, until the day you die, God will pursue you. And one of the ways that he pursues you is he lovingly reminds you that you haven't fully surrendered to him yet. And because of that, you and I live in this uneasiness and inside of us. What would it be like if you and I were fully at peace with God? If there was nothing left hidden in our closet, there was nothing hidden in our heart, there was nothing that we hadn't surrendered to God, but we had fully given it all to Him. Therefore, no no matter where we are, we know that we're at peace with God and that peace dwells on us. Some of us have never experienced that before because even though we've made some kind of decision in our life to follow Jesus, we haven't fully surrendered to him yet. We haven't given up. We haven't laid down our weapons of war. We haven't given everything over to him, and he's just waiting for that day so that he can allow his peace to rest on us. So for you and I to embrace the concept of peacemaking, we first have to make peace with God, which Jesus purchased for you and I on the cross, but you and I have to surrender to it. Then the second thing, which gets even... A little bit more difficult is that you and I have to choose to maintain peace with others. It's one thing to make sure that we're at peace with God, which Jesus has done that for us. We have to accept it and embrace it. But maintaining peace with others, meaning that we choose not to live in division, in offense, in separation from other people. And one of the ways that we do that to maintain that is that we keep our eye on our relationships. And that's one of the things that we do is we ask the simple question and we look somebody in the eye and we say are we okay? If there's any inclination that maybe you are not in a right relationship with somebody, part of relational maintenance is having the courage to say are we okay? Instead of ignoring what you think you hope is not there but really could be there, it's bringing it to the forefront and saying, "Hey, if there is anything that's not right between us, let's make it right. Are we okay?" I'll ask him that sometimes if we're going through stuff and maybe I'm feeling some tension or she's feeling some tension with me, she'll look me in the eye or I'll look her in the eye and I'll say, hey, are we okay? And sometimes, yeah, we're good. Just had a rough day. I'm a little tired. The other times, you like, no, we're not okay and we need to talk. But some of us, we're afraid to ask that question of anybody because we're afraid what we're going to hear. But if we're going to be about peacemaking, that means we have to establish that in our lives. We have to do the ongoing relational maintenance required to keep a context of peace and that means you and I have to risk ourselves. It's maintenance that we have to do. Some of us, we just don't like maintenance. We just wish that everything would work without maintaining anything. Some people look at their cars that way. They wish their cars were just completely self-sufficient. You never had to maintain them at all. In fact, I had a girlfriend a number of years ago, and, and she had a, a car that she had had for, I wasn't quite sure how long she had had it, but she went on away on a trip, and she let me borrow her car for a week. And so, I noticed that she said, yeah, it hasn't been running right. There's something wrong with it. The engine doesn't sound right. I said, okay, well, I'll take it to my mechanic, and I'll see, you know, what's wrong with it. And so I took it to the mechanic, and he looked it over, and he changed the oil and stuff. And he said, yeah, he goes, there's definitely some problems with this car. And I said, well, what do you think's wrong? He goes, well, do you know when the last time was that she changed the oil? I said, I don't know. I said, I don't even really know how long she's had the car. He goes, well, we probably need to figure that one out. He said, but there's some definite internal issues in the engine i said okay well when she got back from her trip i said hey i said the mechanic looked at it and there's some issues in the car and and by the way when was the last time you changed the oil and i kid you not she looked at me and she goes change the oil i said yeah you know the lubrication inside the engine that helps it from burning up and being destroyed she goes oh you're supposed to change the oil So we figured out how long she had owned the car and how many miles. It had been 30,000 miles since she changed the oil in her car. And this was not synthetic oil. This was regular oil. That car lasted another two months, and it was done. See, you and I wish that somehow, relationally, we could just kind of plug our ears and close our eyes and just think, everything's cool, everything's great. But if you and I don't periodically ask the question, are we okay, then what's going to happen? Eventually, somehow, our relationships are going to seize up and be destroyed. Because we haven't had the courage to say, you know what, I want to maintain peace. That means I'm going to ask the question if I feel like there's anything that maybe needs to be dealt with with a friend or with a spouse or with somebody at church or a coworker, to make sure that if there's anything there, we choose to deal with it. We choose to maintain our relationships. And it's important for you and I to, to be reminded of that because I've read this and quoted this so many times because Paul tells us, that this is what our responsibility says. If it is possible, this is Romans twelve eighteen. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. As far as it depends on you, it's your responsibility to ask the question, are we okay? Are we good? Which leads to the third thing in terms of personal peacemaking. That means that there's this, the next step is actually seeking peace with others. It's one thing to maintain to ask that, but it's another thing to actually go on the offensive where we actually go after people to make sure that we are reconciled and we are at peace with each other. That's difficult. That means that we have to risk either being rejected or we have to risk the pain of being in a, in a relationship that's based on offense that we need to deal with. That's hard. But it's something that's absolutely essential for us to live in right relationship. In fact, listen to the strong words. You've heard this before, I'm sure. Listen to the two verses that Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 23 and 24. He says, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. We don't like that verse. Because we like to say, you know what? It's just between me and God. Ever said that? Wrong. It's never just between you and you and God. It's between you, God, and everyone else. Because the way we relate horizontally has a lot to do with the way we relate vertically to God. So God says to you and I, if you come to engage in relationship with me, to offer your gift, to worship me, but you know that somebody is offended at you or you are offended at somebody, you have to stop in your tracks and go to them and reconcile. That's hard. Just, just for a moment, I just want you to think about this. What would it look like if we literally obeyed that verse exactly as, it, as it's written every single Sunday? Just think about it for for, for a few moments. So the first 10 minutes of every service at New Hope would be this. You walk in the room, and you think through your mind, who here am I at odds with? And you go to that person. Or maybe they're not in the room, so you get your cell phone out, and you make a phone call. And you say, hey, I just want you to know, I came to worship the Lord today, but I knew that we weren't right, and before I worship him, I want to make sure my relationship's right with you. Would you forgive me for this? And then you hung up the phone. Can you imagine what that would be like? i'll tell you two things that would be true the first 10 minutes of our service would be very uncomfortable but the second thing our worship would be powerful can you just imagine for a moment what would it be like to fully engage god with no relational drama around you some of us don't even know what that's like because we live in it constantly but just imagine for a moment what that would look like See, the tragedy is many of us don't even know this, but the reality for you and I is the moment that you choose to live in offense or live at odds with somebody, you've just suspended your spiritual growth. You can't move forward. You think that you can, but you can't because God will continue to say, whoa, 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 whoa. You want to continue to engage with me? I'm going to keep pushing you to people. And we try to turn up the noise of life to try to forget about it. But God, when we try to engage him, he keeps pushing us back to our relationships to make sure our relationships are right. Right? So for some of us, we've been stuck for years because we still live in a fence and we think we've grown, but we haven't grown at any, any, any rate because we still are at odds with people and we haven't sought after them to make sure that our relationships are reconciled, that we're living at peace with people around us, that we're going after it. But God desires that for you and I. Some of us carry a heavy load. It's almost like, think about every time you and I pick up an offense, it's like carrying a backpack that is filled full of bricks. And every time you pick up another one, you just throw it in your backpack. And before you know it, you are overweight and crushed by the offenses of people around you. And until you go and make those relationships right, that weight will just continue to crush you in life until one by one you go back and you work, like Paul said, as far as it depends on you, live at peace. So as you do that, you get to remove one brick at a time and before you know it, that backpack is empty and you're free. You're free to worship God. You're free to be in right relationship. You're free to walk into church in any context and not have any drama following you. That would be amazing. That would be amazing. And don't think that somehow you can hold out long enough in this life that you get to the next one and think, hey, if I die and they die and we go to heaven, there will be no offense. I don't think that's going to necessarily be true. I think there, there's a possibility that you and I could be standing before the throne and still be at odds with each other because we started an offense that might carry through to eternity because people that you don't like that are Christians, they're going to be there too. Think, oh man, Really? They made it? Yeah, there's probably a reason they made it. Because God wants you to be fully reconciled with him and with people around you. So we have to seek after making peace with other people. So now understanding that's the kind of the price to be paid because peace is not free. How do you and I create a context of peace in the way that we function with our relationships all around us? There's some things I want to highlight. These are not easy, but easy, these are essential for you and I. The first one of creating a context of peace is that you and I need to learn... Not to be afraid to confront division in church, in people's lives, and in relationships. That we aren't afraid to address the fact that people are living at odds with each other. We like to shy away from that. I don't want to stick my nose in there. I don't want to. I don't want to say anything. I, I'm just going to kind of pray for them that God would help them. Maybe God, you are the answer to the prayer that you're praying. Listen to what Paul said. It's not an option for you and I to live with division. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there will be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly unified in mind and thought. That's pretty definitive. One of the things, you know, we like to say in the church, let's just agree to Disagree. Do you see that anywhere in verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 1? No. Paul doesn't say that. He doesn't say, you know, it's okay. Hey, we can. He does say, we can have differences of opinion, but we just can't disagree and say, hey, we're cool, we're good. He's saying you need to be one in mind and in thought and what you say. You need to be on the same page. And if any of us live in the reality that we're not, then it's our responsibility as Paul. Paul comes out and says, division, you need to deal with it. You need to be one in thought and process in heart and mind. You need to be together. So that means for you and I, that if we're going to have this context of peace, that means we have to be willing to have enough courage in a loving way to say to people, I see that you're at odds. I see that there's division. And be willing to say that and be willing to initiate that and be willing to address that in people's lives. See, because the tragedy for most of us is that we're not willing to do that. Because we're, we're not willing to pay the price. We're not willing to get in the middle of the mess. We'd rather just step back and let things happen. But division runs rampant throughout the church. It happens in every church. It happens in New Hope. It happens all over the place. In fact, I have an interesting perspective being a pastor for a number of years now. I have heard just about every reason there is under the sun of why people leave a church. I've heard it all. But I've also figured out over the years that only about 10% of the church transitions are actually healthy. They're actually based on the fact that God called somebody to embrace a different ministry because that fit fit more with their gifting. Or they moved to another church because there was a specific ministry that really targeted the need that they had. Those are good transitions. But the other 90% that I've discovered... Most of the time, even though lots of different excuses are given of why church transition happens and why people leave, is the bottom line, about 90% end up being as a result of personal offense. With a leader, with another member at the church, or with the pastor. It happens over and over and over again. And we try to come up with great spiritual reasons, like God called me. Did he really call you or you just ticked off and hurt at somebody else? Let's just be honest. And when you start digging down in the lives, you realize, and that's why it's our responsibility. If we're going to live in peace, if we see division, before there's this separation, we address it. You have an issue with a leader. You have an issue with the pastor. You have an issue with somebody else in the church. And we step in and say, listen, you need to deal with that because we need to be in unity together and be willing to do that. I remember when this really hit home for me. When we planted the church in Ventura, I remember went, I read books and went to seminars, and, and on a number of occasions, I heard the same advice that I didn't want to believe, and that is these experienced, I guess, jaded church planters would say in seminars and in books, they'd say, hey, listen, you young bucks who think you're going to go save the world by planting a church you need to understand the reality, and this is what they'd say. They said, don't think that you're going to go out and save the world. Because what you're going to attract when you start your church is you're most likely in the first two or three years, you're not going to reach too many new people who don't know Jesus yet. You know what you are going to be, your church is going to be filled with? Broken, hurting, offended people who have left other churches. I remember when I heard that, I'm like, no, not me. No me. I'm different. I'm going to be able to change the world. The church that we create is going to be the perfect church where all these non-believers come and get saved. Not even Close. Within a month or two, I, I watched the truth of what they spoke become a reality. Our church was filled with broken people who knew Jesus, but were bitter and hurt and upset at the previous churches they'd been a part of. So in the first few years of that church plant, I did a lot of counseling for people who came into my office or wanted to become members. And I'd say, hey, how did you leave your last church? And they didn't want to tell me. I said, well, if you're going to move forward here, we're going to need to talk about that. And time and time again, I'd hear them say, well, the pastor did this. Or this leader said this. Or this person did this. And I'd say this, okay, you want to move forward here? Then you're going to go make that relationship right. Some people didn't like it. They were offended at me, and then they started the continual cycle and went to another church. But a lot of people said, you know what? I'm tired of the cycle. Because if you leave a church out of offense, guess what you're going to do again? you're going to leave another church out of offense. And the sad thing is you leave a church thinking somehow I'll go over there and then I'll grow. You're not growing at all because you're still tied to your past because you're unreconciled. And I had people in our church It was beautiful. It was painful to watch, but it was beautiful. They would make phone calls or make appointments with their former pastors or they would write letters of apology saying, listen, we left under the wrong circumstances. We want to make sure that our relationship is right. And I watched those people's lives be transformed changed because now they were free to move forward there wasn't any baggage there wasn't any pain there wasn't any residual from the past they could move forward and so their church transition at that point became healthy some of you might be sitting here today and you're still ticked off at your previous pastor for whatever they did or didn't do or how somehow they let you down and you've lived in that pain The sad thing is, is I'll probably offend you too because I'm human and imperfect. And so is the person sitting on your right and your left. We're human beings. Just because we get offended doesn't mean that we separate. It means we fight for unity because that's what God desires for you and I. Which leads to the second thing of creating a context of peace is seeking to help others reconcile. So we address division, we confront it but then we seek reconciliation amongst people because it's important for their lives. The context of peace can only be achieved when everyone takes an active role in bringing people together who are separated. In fact, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 4, Paul addresses two people that have an issue. He says, Now I appeal to you, Judea and Syntyche, please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. When I read verses like that, I think those two people Got one verse in all of scripture and what did it have to do with disagreement? That's their claim to fame. It's like, hey, I was in the Bible for what? Because I was at odds with my brother or sister. That's not a good reason to be mentioned in scripture. But what is Paul saying? I know that the two of you aren't getting along. And for the sake of Jesus Christ, would you please figure out a way to agree and get along with each other? That's what Paul's saying. And the same thing's true for you and I. There may be people that you know that are unreconciled with each other and it's our responsibility to say, hey, on behalf of Jesus, I want to help bring reconciliation in your relationships. I want to help bring you together so that you're not at odds. Because one of the things you and I will discover when we are willing to deal with offense and we are willing to seek peace and go after it, what it does is it brings health in our life and it unlocks the future that God has for us. Some of us are so stuck in the past that we don't even realize we're stuck. Because we've lived in so much offense. It's not just one person, it's multiple people. And until we're willing to deal with that, we're not moving forward. I know I experienced, I think I've shared this before, but I experienced this. The reality hit me like a ton of bricks. When Kim and I were transitioning from Newburgh or from Ventura to move up to Newburgh, before we even knew we were going to Newburgh, we were seeking the Lord, we were praying, we were fasting, and we weren't getting any clarity saying, okay, God, what do you want us to do? Because we knew there was transition happening. We knew he was stirring us up, but we weren't getting any direction of what we're supposed to do, where we're supposed to go. So I contacted Rob Haddam, who was our district supervisor at the time, and he and Janet, we sat down for dinner with them, and we said, we need your guidance. We need your help. Because we're seeking God, and we're not hearing anything. We need you to help us hear what God's saying to us. So for a couple hours, we just kind of vomited all that's going on in our lives and said, "Hey, we need help. We need clarity. What is God saying?" And I remember after hearing, Rob and Janet sat quietly for like two hours, and then Rob looks at me and goes, "I don't know where you're supposed to go. I don't know what you're supposed to do." He goes, "But one thing I do know for sure, you have an offense with a previous leader that you worked under, then you need to deal with that." That's what he said to me. I was so mad. It's like, that's not the voice of the Lord. That's not what I wanted to hear. You didn't give me any clarity. You just ticked me off any more, even more. And I walked away from that meeting so frustrated. But it took me about 10 minutes to figure out Rob was dead on. I said, okay, God. So said, it doesn't give me any clarity, but I'll do it. So I phoned, called my friend who was a leader in my life and said, I, I need to meet with you. A couple days later, we had breakfast together and I asked for his forgiveness. And he asked for my forgiveness and we reconciled. In that moment, it got unlocked. God, God's voice came through clear on the direction we were supposed to go, go, the steps we were supposed to take, and where we were supposed to go. It was amazing how that one event unlocked the future. Because I know what God was saying. You're not going anywhere. You're not going to go serve in some other ministry capacity until you deal with the offense that you're living in in your life. See, that's why for you and I, we have to seek to help others reconcile because you might not realize that that reconciliation is the key for their future. And you can see what's going on and God's called you to be a peacemaker. Therefore, he's called you to be someone who helps people reconcile with each other so that you can help them to move forward. And then the third thing gets even more difficult is that creating a context of peace means we also have to be mediators, not moderators. See, being a moderator is really easy. You just kind of let the fight go on and you just kind of pass information. You can moderate. But a mediator... Steps into the middle and seeks resolution and reconciliation. In fact, that's the very thing that Jesus did for you and I. Listen to Paul's words in 1 Timothy 2 5. He says, For there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus steps in between the wrath of God and our sin, and he brings forgiveness through the cross so that you and I could be at peace with God. He is the mediator. And there are times where God will call you to be the mediator, which means you have to be willing to step into the fray and be willing to deal with people who are wounded and upset and offended at other people as a way to help them come to a place of reconciliation in their lives, to mediate, to get into the middle of it. If you were here a couple weeks ago and we talked about mercy, which you can tell there's a lot of similarity between mercy and then the extension of peace. And also if you were at the compass gatherings, we talked about The gossip policy for our church that if somebody's offended that you go to them and say I see that you're offended with this person I'm going to give you a week to go to them and deal with it And if they don't at the end of the week you go tell the person they're offended at that they're offended so that you force them together That's hard But that kills gossip and it brings reconciliation and relationships It's what we have to do, but it's difficult as we walk through that because When you become a mediator you put yourself on the line it becomes very personal because you're stepping into the middle of a fight and none of us like to do that. We would rather just walk away and pretend it's not happening, but a mediator steps in and says, how are we going to bring reconciliation and resolution? The difficult thing is it's not guaranteed every time. You seek peace and you fight for peace, but it doesn't necessarily happen every time, but God calls you to seek after it in people's lives. One of those, those parts of my life where I sought for peace and I'm still praying today that somehow God will bring re- reconciliation between a group of people, when I was pastoring in Newburgh, there was a little community called Lafayette, probably about six or seven miles away from Newburgh. Newburgh was small at 25,000. Lafayette was a lot smaller at like 3,000 or 4,000, maybe even less. But it just so happens of their six city council members in Lafayette, five of them attended our church. So we had virtually the, almost the whole city council. And they were all believers. But somehow, because of politics, they found a way to be at odds with each other within their own city. So city council meetings, they were battling each other and they were upset at each other. And everybody knew they went to the same church and they all claimed to be believers. They claimed claimed to be Christians. So I realized I need to do something to help people get along. So in conversation with someone, I said, why don't you guys all come to a neutral place? It's called the church. And we're going to try to figure this thing out. So they came in on a a weeknight and we sat down and I pulled in one of my council members because I knew this was going to be bloody and ugly. And it got bloody and ugly in a hurry. So these people sat around this table, and for two to three hours, it was amazing, they butchered each other. They went after it. They, they lobbed insults at each other, and it ended up being four against one. There was one guy that they just couldn't like, they didn't like him, and, and it didn't have anything to do with what it meant to follow Jesus. It had to do with politics in their city. He actually got up and walked out in tears halfway through the meeting and I went and had to bring him back in and we battled and by the end of the night we prayed together but I knew that the peace that was in the room was really unsettled and tragically the one couple ended up leaving our church because they felt like they could not be at peace with people there and to this day I pray that God will bring some reconciliation because this, the tragedy is is that believers allowed politics to get in the way of unity and that should never happen it should never happen But I remember I took a few hits in the process because when I opened my mouth and I tried to mediate, I was never making everybody in the room happy. So there were some people that were mad at me afterwards and I had to make sure that we were reconciled. I had to ask the question, are we okay? I was trying to fight for unity for you guys. I was on all of your sides trying to help you and they had to realize that. But the joy for me as a pastor is that it doesn't always end bad, it ends good too. And I see it happen a lot in marriage counseling and premarital counseling where couples come together And they're at odds. Even in premarital counseling, think, oh, it's all rosy and wonderful. They're getting married. They're engaged. They're excited. But then when you do premarital counseling and you dig deep, you realize there's issues. A couple of years ago, I was counseling one couple and we were heading towards their wedding day. And and their counseling sessions were going pretty good. But every single session, we would always come down to one issue that kept coming up that they were going to battle over. And they kept fighting over. And there was always tension when we got to that point. And so finally, like the fourth counseling session in, at the end of the session, I said, this is what I, I said to them. I said, listen, I said, this one issue that you're dealing with, you can get everything else right. But if you don't get this one right, this is a deal breaker. This is one of those ones you say, you know what? Maybe it's not the right person. Maybe it's not the right time. I said, so this is what your homework is between now and our next counseling session. I said, you're going to have a date and your date is going out to dinner and you're going to have a come to Jesus meeting with the two of you together. And you're going to figure out how you're going to get on the same page in this area. I said, and if you can't, then I don't know if I'm going to marry you. Because that's my, my responsibility for God as a pastor is that when I bring two people together, I'm saying before God, this is God's will for their life. And I take it very seriously. So I said, that's your homework. So come back in two weeks and you tell me what your decision is. So they left and two weeks later they come back in and they said, listen, thank you for challenging us in that area. It was hard, it was painful, but we had a long conversation and we feel like we've come to be on the same page and we're reconciled in that area. And I said, it's good, I'll marry you. Six months after they got married, I get this great note from the, from the, the woman, in the, the gal, and she, she says, I just want to say thank you to you. She goes, thank you for performing the ceremony. Thank you. That. She goes, but I want to thank you for that one counseling session where you challenged us to be reconciled in this area of our life. She said, because it's made all the difference in our marriage today. She said, I love the man that I married because we're at peace in all areas of our life. I love that. I actually got to see it work right. I got to see peace come because God reconciled the part of their relationship that was broken. So understanding that, which leads to the final thing, and I want to close with this because it's extremely important. Creating a context of peace also means that you and I have to reject division and promote unity. So if you look at the bigger picture, in light of all that is going on around us and what God's mission is in the world, you and I have to come to grips with what's at stake. It would be one thing if God was just in the business of saying, okay, just get along because I want you to have healthy relationships, which he does. But when you and I realize there's something much larger at stake than just me getting along with somebody else, it's God's global mission to understand the importance of this. Listen to what Paul said, which, by the way, you, someday when you get to heaven, find somebody who was in the Corinthian church and say this to them, thank you for screwing up so much. <laughs> Seriously. That's why we have First and Second Corinthians. That's, we have so much great teaching on the church because they messed up so badly, Paul had to continually address them. And he does it again in 1 Corinthians 6, 7. He says, The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wrong? Why not rather be cheated? So what is he referring to? People were taking issues which were they should have dealt with within the church. They should have come to a church leader, an elder, or a pastor and said, We have this, this issue we can't resolve. Can you help us? Instead of doing that, they step outside the church. They go into the legal system and they start suing each other. And what does that say to the world around them? It says Christians are just like everybody else. They can't get along. They haven't figured that out. Yet the Bible says over and over again that one of the signs of being a believer and being a follower of Jesus is that we love one another. And love means that we find a way to get along. It's one of the areas that the world looks at the church, says, hey, we can't get along Can they? And then they look at the church, they think, yeah, they're not doing much better than we are. See, the world divides over everything. Economics, politics, sexual preference, neighborhoods where you live, the language you speak, the culture you grow up in, everything is a way to divide. And yet the beauty of the body of Christ is taking all those backgrounds, differences, failures, failures, Sins preferences political views and bring them all into unity under one head and his name is jesus christ That's the beauty of the church The world should be able to look at the diversity of the body of christ and yet find it in unity and say wow There must be a god if those people can get along seriously, that's what they should be saying But usually they look at the church and they say You're just like us We're just like the world. We divide over Democrat, Republican, conservative, liberal. We shouldn't. Because I'm convinced Jesus doesn't care what your political affiliation is. He doesn't. And it's amazing how much the church divides over politics as much as the world does. We shouldn't. Our focus is to follow Jesus Our focus is not to get our political persuasion from the right or the left or Democrat or Republican. It's to read the scriptures under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and obey Jesus and what he said. I don't care what side of the aisle it falls on. It doesn't matter because it's about unifying under Christ. It's amazing how every political view thinks Jesus is on their side. He must be schizophrenic. It doesn't matter what side he's on because Jesus is not political. The religious leaders wanted to make him political. His followers, his disciples wanted to make him political. But he wasn't. Because he knew this another place that we would divide. We should be unified under Jesus. He's the one. When you say, well, what's your political view? I don't know. What's Jesus' view on the matter? What does scripture say? What does Jesus tell us to do about that? Let's go have that dialogue, not what somebody in the White House or somebody in Congress tells us what we should think. Jesus is the one who tells us what we should think. That's what brings unity. He trumps all political parties and all powers in all the world. He has all power and all authority. And he brings us in unity under him. He covers us from our sins so we're at unity with God and we can bring unity in the world. This is important. Why? Because if you and I can't get, learn to get along with each other, people don't come to know Jesus. That's the reality. They look at us and instead of having a positive view of who Jesus is, they have a negative view. Why? Because the church can't get, even get along. Doesn't mean that it's uniformity that we're all we're all robots and think and look and act and say the same things, but there is a diversity that brings about unity. It's called harmony. And it's beautiful when it happens. That's what God's purpose for us. Let me play this this short clip from Remember the Titans as a reminder to you and I. Of course, this movie was along racial lines, but it has a lot to do with coming and finding unity instead of warring against each other. So let's take a look at this together. Go ahead and just close your eyes <clears throat> and bow your heads The reason I'm asking you to do that Is just so that you can focus on what The Lord may be speaking to you This morning or today and I think there's a number of things That he may be saying And one of those may be That you know that In your heart You know that there's been turmoil Because you Although you might have desired On the outside To, to be at peace with God Deep down and in your heart You know that you're You're struggling because you know that you haven't fully surrendered yourself to God. And so this morning God is giving you an opportunity to do that, to come forward and to allow him to permeate every part of your heart and your life and your soul and fully surrender to him. Because you may be here and there's never been that moment in your life where you said, you know what, today's the day that I surrender, I give everything over to him. And you allow his agenda to rule your life instead of your own. If you haven't done that, you can do that today. You can surrender yourself fully turning from the way you used to live by your agenda and turning towards the agenda that God has for your life. And as you surrender, turning from your life, you now embrace peace with God because Jesus' death on the cross, he takes your sin and your failure and your brokenness that you now leave in the past, he forgives you for that and then gives you peace with God. You can have that today. You simply have to be willing to surrender and say, from this day forward, I choose to find out God's agenda for my life and surrender to him. In fact, you can even begin to talk to him about it. It's called prayer. Just begin to say, God, I want to surrender fully to you today. I don't want to hold anything back. I want to live by your agenda and your purpose for my life. Maybe you've obviously done that in your life before, but you know that inside there's, there's some relational debris in your life. Much like we experienced a couple weeks ago when we talked about mercy, one of the challenges that we faced was that we were to go to people that we know that we were at odds with and extend mercy so that we could see reconciliation happen. Today we're revisiting that in a sense. It's been two weeks. Have you gone to people that either you know that you're offended towards or they're offended towards you to seek, as Paul said, to live at peace as far as it depends on you? God's calling you to do that today. Maybe he's brought that person to your mind because he wants you to be free, to move forward, and to be healthy, and to follow him. So if I've described the context that you're in right now, realize that that's God speaking to you. God wanting you to move forward. God wanting you to be at peace and in peace in your relationships. Why? Because God loves you so much and God loves the world so much that He wants us to come together in unity so that as a unified army before Him, we can see His purpose and His mission and His kingdom advance through our lives. So, Lord Jesus, we thank You. Thank You for the words that we are blessed when we're peacemakers. Thank You that when we live that out, Lord, we are living out the identity and what it means to be a part of your family, because you are the ultimate peacemaker that we follow and become just like you as your sons and daughters. Lord, let that be true of our lives in our church. Let that be true of our lives in our work, in our families, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, everywhere that we go, Lord, that we would be people of peace. And as a result of us dealing with offenses and living at peace and maintaining relationships, that the context of peace that we live in expands and extends to people around us. So Lord Jesus, would you do that in our lives so that others who look at us would find deep in us, as they look at our lives, they would find a reason to want to know you. Because we live in peace because you have made peace between us and the Father. Thank you, Jesus, for what you have done. Now let's live this out in our lives. In your name, amen.